All right, and welcome everyone to Grace. We're really glad you're here for worship. We want this to be a time when you just have a dynamic encounter with the living God. As many of you know, a few weeks ago, we gave out to 200 different people an envelope with a $100 bill in each of them. And they had an assignment. This is God's money, but you asked the Holy Spirit to show you how you can creatively use this, invest this to help someone who is hurting. And I just love these stories that are coming in. They're just getting better and better and better through the weeks. So if you're still uh, working on yours and so on, go ahead and give God time to to complete it and then uh, get it into us. We'd love to hear it. I want to share a couple of those in starting today. Becca Mason, how did you feel when you first understood the assignment, Becca? Well, I felt the responsibility to really pray and seek God on how he would have me use the money. You see, I was leaving on a missions trip to Haiti, and we just recently had a medical missions team that went to Haiti, and that's what she's referring to, in less than a week, and soon felt called that I should bring it with me and to stay tuned on when and how to use it. Well, how did you decide to actually use the money? (coughs) Becca says, it was the second day of the mobile medical clinics, and there was a God reason that I didn't have any patients the first chunk of the morning. So I started toggling between different areas, praying over where I was supposed to go. Well, I ended up in an exam room with Mike Ungerlin as he examined a 22-day-old infant that had a deformity on her skull. He determined that we would really need a CAT scan soon to determine the extent of any brain damage. He talked with a local doctor and found that it would cost $100 to have the imaging done. So, Becca, how did you use the money? It quickly became evident that I was in that room at that exact time for a reason when a very specific need of $100 came up. I was overwhelmed in thinking about how God's sovereignty stretched from Pastor Rex's heart for compassion all the way to this infant's need in Haiti, and I was so blessed to be a witness along the way. Isn't that an awesome story? of just relying on the Holy Spirit. Yeah, relying on the Lord to show you how to use the money. One more story. Jay Gerace writes this about his kingdom assignment. How did you feel, Jay, when you first understood the assignment? When I first understood it, I had an overwhelming feeling of excitement about the possibilities. That overwhelming feeling really slammed me in the face when a lovely couple sitting next to me reached into their wallets and handed me $100 of their own money. They said, you look trustworthy. We want to take our money and use it with the money from the church. Whatever you're going to do with it, we'd like to be a part of it. My wife and I also wanted to personally invest $100 of our own money in this project. So Jay, how did you decide to use it? Well, I knew pretty quickly that I wanted to touch as many people as possible. So I spent the next week thinking and praying about how I could use the $300. I'm a colony police lieutenant, and I lead 23 patrol officers, 
two traffic investigators, and three parole sergeants. This past Monday, I committed to involving all of them in the use of this money. These men and women are on the front lines of engaging with people who are hurting, and I wanted to leverage their collective might to make a maximum impact. I also wanted to soften their hearts a bit by bringing them along with me on this exciting project. At roll call, I briefed them on the origin of the money and sent them out into the community with the clear goal of looking for someone to help. After roll call, all three of the sergeants who worked for me personally invested $100 each in the project, and before I knew it, I was sitting on $600. The response from the police officers has been fantastic. They've been coming to work all week with smiles on their faces. We've also begun soliciting ideas for a name for our fund. I have a feeling that this fund is going to continue to grow. So, Jay, how did the money actually get used? Well, our first disbursement came the following day, October the 10th, 2017. Two police officers were dispatched to a local trailer park to check on the welfare of a wheelchair-bound cancer patient. The officers engaged her and her husband in conversation, and they discovered that her prognosis was really not good. They also found out that she was having trouble getting to her doctor's appointments because the people who drive her do not have the ability to lift her out of her wheelchair and carry her down the trailer stairs. These officers sprung into action and decided to find a way to build her a wheelchair ramp that would take her from the trailer to the parking lot. So they got the assistance of the West Albany Fire Department who agreed to build the ramp for the couple, and we used our first $100 to buy the materials. The woman's husband shook my hand and hugged me and told me, there really are good people in this world. And then Jay concludes by saying, $500 left to go. So that story is going to continue. What amazing things God is doing as God's people are praying and asking the Holy Spirit, where do you want this money to go? I think that's a great segue into our message today. We've been going through the first five chapters of Acts, and today we're going to start in chapter 6. And what we've seen is that this amazing church in Jerusalem, wow, God was all over it. God was using mostly ordinary people to do extraordinary things because they were inspired with courage by the Holy Spirit. We've seen that to God, integrity was huge and that he wanted his people to be a good advertisement for the Lord Jesus Christ. But we've also seen that in spite of all the good that was going on, they soon ran into problems with people out there who did not like their message. And what we're about to see is not only were there problems out there, but in chapter 6, we're going to run into the fact that pretty soon in the life of the church, they ran into internal problems as well. So if your Bible's open there, I'm going to start reading in Acts chapter 6, Verse 1, 
In those days, the number of disciples was increasing. The Grecian Jews among them, that is people with a Greek ethnicity, complained against the Hebraic Jews, that is those that were a part of the church that had a Hebrew or Jewish ethnicity and background because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now let's stop there for now. We'll pick it up again in just a few minutes. But no matter what organization you're a part of, and especially today, if you lead an organization, whether it's in the church, parachurch, whether it's in the community, business, the principles we're looking at today, I believe, are very relevant to wherever you are, whatever community, organization you're a part of. But I also want to warn you, some of the things you're about to hear may shock you just a bit, so make sure your seatbelt is fastened, okay? The first lesson is this, church next has problems. Can you believe it? And one of their first problems was this. They found out that taking care of needy, hurting people is really tough. Now, their primary purpose was to win as many people to Jesus as they could and then help them grow in him. But they also understood that, look, we're a family here. So while our main focus is out there, we really are to care for one another as well. And so... Early on, they started a benevolence ministry for the widows within the church. Now, in that culture, this is important. This is not always true in our culture today in the U.S. But in that culture, widows were almost entirely the poorest, the most helpless and hopeless people in the society. And so they said, look, we're going to care for the least of these. And so that's what they did. They provided food for them. But soon, a dispute arose. It really had a sort of racist tone to it, to be honest. The Grecian widows said, look, uh, we aren't getting the same attention and care as these Hebraic widows are. And you know what? They complained. And you know what the word, the Greek word for complained means? It means complained. I mean, they, they, they really did complain. There's no fancy meaning here. In fact, it's the same word used in the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the same Greek word used for the murmuring and the complaining that the children of Israel did in the wilderness. So this is not good. Now you say, whoa, wait a minute, Pastor, time out. If I've been hearing you right the last few weeks, few weeks, I thought that this was the church where they had what seemed like tongues of fire on their head. Is this the same people? Yes, it is. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Time out, Pastor. I thought this was the same church where they had all been baptized with the Holy Spirit. He had come to indwell them, and 3,000 people were saved on one day. Is this the same church? Yes, it is. 
Okay, I can't wrap my mind around this. Pastor, I thought this was the church where integrity was so important that God actually took two people out early on because of their hypocrisy. Is this the same group? Yes, it is. And even a church that amazing, even a church that healthy, can you believe it, has problems. They're criticizing their leaders and grumbling against them. We need to learn this lesson first, and we need to learn it well. Even good churches are going to have problems, and church next will have problems as well. Now, I believe that Grace Fellowship is a really good church. Generally, we're pretty healthy. That's the truth. But can I be honest with you? If you stay here very long, you're going to find out. You're going to discover pretty quickly that we've got problems. Can I tell you about them? We've got people who are whiners. We've got hypocrites who just practice hypocrisy. They don't walk their talk. We've got people who have bizarre and strange doctrine. We have people who have quirky and weird personalities. We have folks who can't get along with others. And by the way, so far, I'm just describing my executive team. I haven't even gotten to the congregation yet, all right? This church has problems. But as Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, true community begins with disillusionment. Some of you need to hear that. Because some of you, whatever little group you've been a part of, the first time any sort of conflict or problems reared their ugly head, you went running for the hills. You need to hear this. True community begins with disillusionment. And if you've not been a little bit disappointed or even disillusioned, you haven't even pushed through to what true biblical community really looks like. Here's the deal, folks. We've got to love people as they are, not the way we wish they were. We've got to love people just as they are, knowing that God isn't finished with them yet, just like he's not finished with us. Got to love them as they are, not as we wish they were. So this first church was just filled with imperfect, we saw it last week, Ananias and Sapphira, hypocrites. If you read on in Acts 15, you'll see that Paul and Barnabas had such a strong conflict between them that they did not work together again the rest of their lives. You read on to Acts 18, you see that Apollos, although he was mighty in word and was a great orator, we see that he was teaching a doctrinal error about baptism. This was a good church, but it was made up of imperfect people. And so my word to you is this. Look, if you ever find a perfect church, please don't join it. You'll wreck it from the moment you show up. Do not join that church. Let it stay perfect. Now, before we leave this and quickly move on, I just want to add one little footnote. One of the unique things, well, Maybe unique is not the word, because I'm sure it's true in other countries as well. I do believe it's more pronounced in the U.S. than any other country that I've ever seen. One of the real unusual things about U.S. culture right now is within the church, over the last several decades, a consumer mentality has developed. And I tell you this because it's one of the main things that leads to problems. What do you mean by consumer mentality, Pastor? 
instead of people understanding what the church is, this is just an army. This is a filling station when we come together. Our focus is out there. Our focus is not on a primarily on our own needs, although they may be very real. People forget completely about the needy world out there. They forget about the mission. They forget about lost people who don't know Christ yet and are on a road toward hell. And it all becomes inwardly focused. And here's the consumer mentality. What have you done for me lately? And so you hear phrases like this. Why don't you have a support group for my need? Why isn't anybody paying attention to me? I'm not sure I'm getting a lot from the sermons. They're a little bit over my head. I'm not getting fed. And people whine and whine. And listen, if you've ever had those thoughts, it could be that your whole understanding of what the church is is a little off. It's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about that world out there that needs to be one for Christ. And if you've not been served properly or you're not being fed like you need to be, maybe it's time that you get out of the high chair and take the bib off and learn to feed yourself a little bit. And learn to not be served, but to serve, for God's sake, somebody else. That's a message that American churches, especially, really need to hear, but make no mistake, church next is gonna have problems. Principle number two, church next has to organize to meet needs. Now I'm gonna give you a principle here again, and I, I told you that no matter what organization you're a part of, this is true for your business, it's true for your school, your community uh, organization, whatever, here it is, sustained success demands sufficient structure. Sustained success that's going to last over the long haul demands sufficient structure. You cannot just keep the same structure and expect it to flourish. Here's why. Because growth brings chaos. So you have to organize. Whether you're talking about the PTA or the ball team or the business or a successful church or even a family reunion, somebody has to be behind the scenes Organizing. Now, this good church in Jerusalem discovered that truth big time 2,000 years ago. The leaders didn't just ignore the problems and walk away. They said, hey, let's get a plan together. Let's organize to meet these needs. And so they said, look, we're going to choose, we're asking you to choose 12 men full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit, and let's hand this task over to them. We pick it up again in verse five. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. What a plan. Now, some people believe that preparation 
and organization are antithetical to the Holy Spirit. Some people think if you really are just walking in step with the Spirit, you're really tight with Him, that you don't need to do any planning. God's just going to give you exactly what you need. Even, a, even in a message, He'll give you exactly what you need just when you need it with no preparation. Now, admittedly, Jesus did say in Matthew 20 that if you are arrested for my name and you're bound and you're tied up and you're being accused and you're being tried, he said, don't worry about what you're going to say. Look, I'll give you what you need to say for that moment. He did say that. But nowhere does the Bible say that Christians should not be into preparation. Martin Luther, by the way, whom we're going to talk about next weekend, I'm so excited about that because October 31st is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and so I'm going to do a one-time message next week, and I do not want you to miss on Martin Luther and what the heart of that whole Reformation was all about. I think you're not only going to enjoy next weekend, but I think you're going to learn some things, and I believe we're all going to be challenged as well. But Martin Luther once tried this out. He said, I wonder if the Holy Spirit will give me just what I need to preach if I don't do any preparation this week. And so he didn't prepare. All week long, he just did other things and kind of frittered some time away. And when he stepped into the pulpit on Sunday morning, ready to preach, sure enough, the Holy Spirit whispered to him, Martin Luther, you are not prepared. God is in to preparation. The Spirit works through preparation as much as delivery. Now, when you think about it, Jesus was pretty organized, wasn't he? I mean, when he fed 5,000, what did he do? He organized them first. He broke them into groups of 50 and 100. That's organization. Once he sent 70 disciples out that he had trained to go out in twos on a mission. What an organizational plan. And he called 12 apostles that he spent time with training to be his closest friends and colleagues. And then once, you may recall, he sent two of his disciples. He said, I want you to go into the city. Now, when you get to a certain street, you're going to see a man there carrying a water pot. See, he had prearranged all these things. He was a planner. He said, I, I want you to follow him, and that's where you're going to make the final preparation for the Passover meal. Jesus planned many things in advance. And here in Acts chapter 6, the Holy Spirit was guiding the church to be organized. Now, here's a principle that we really need to understand, folks. Peter Drucker, a name some of you in business will recognize, perhaps, is commonly known as the father of modern management theory. Prolific writer, many, many books, both about nonprofit and for-profit organizations. Peter Drucker says that any organization needs to have a significant restructuring after every 45% growth. After every 45% growth, the current structure is not adequate to handle what's happening. You need to restructure it significantly. He wasn't saying anything new. He's just repeating what Jesus said in Luke 5 when he said, new wine demands new wineskins. You can't take new wine and put it in old wineskins. The wineskins have to be flexible to do their job properly. So hear me clearly. 
Ephesians 5.23 says Jesus is the head of the church. Hallelujah. That never changes. It never will. Thank God. But many other things about the church ought to be changing. Structures, methods, styles, ways of going about things ought to be flexible. And Church Next is going to be flexible because new wine demands new wineskins. And so the apostles selected these Seven men full of the spirit and wisdom, and they did not micromanage them. They turned the responsibility over to them and gave their time to their primary calling, the word of God and prayer. One final principle today that I really want to hone in on, and that is church next must stay focused on its primary mission. On its primary mission. It must stay focused. Verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now here's one of the things that impresses me about this early church, and I believe it will be a mark of church next. Here it is. No matter what happened, they stayed focused on their primary mission. You arrest Peter and John, threaten them, say, don't talk anymore in public about this man, Jesus. What do they do? They said, look, we'll have to leave that up to you, what you want to do to us, but we can't help speaking. We're going to go right on preaching the gospel, keeping the main thing the main thing. Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they die because of their deceit and hypocrisy. It shakes the church. It was, it was a very fearful moment. Fear seized the whole church. And yet, nevertheless, it says that more and more men and women were added to the church because they kept focused on their primary mission. And again, here today in Acts 6, same thing. They reorganize, they handle this internal issue, and guess what happens? They just continue to go on with the gospel. Now, here's my point. Sometimes an organization, church, any other organization, can become so complex, so much bureaucracy, so many bells and whistles that we forget what we're here for. Have you ever seen that happen? Have you ever seen it happen in an organization somewhere? I heard a true story of a man who was on a business trip on the East Coast, and he went to the hotel where he was staying, went to the clerk at the desk and said, look, I, I really need to have a sort of emergency meeting in the morning with five of the people that I work with, and we haven't reserved a room or anything, but I need a room. It's just a small room is all we need. Starting at 9 o'clock. We just need it for a couple hours. And the clerk at the desk said, sure, hospitality handles that. So he went over to the hospitality department. Hospitality department said, well, I hear you, but it's really housekeeping that handles that. And so sent him over to housekeeping. And housekeeping, when he explained what he needed, said, well, we do handle that, but I need, I really need the paperwork from the manager first before I can do anything about it. So he goes back to the clerk at the desk, 
Ask is the manager there. Manager comes out, explains the situation, and the manager says, well, yeah, but I can't really do the work. I'm the night manager. You're going to have to wait till the morning for the day manager to get that paperwork for you. And he was so frustrated, he just didn't know what to do. So just, just beside himself with how such a small request should be co- could be so complex. And so he kind of walked out the front of the hotel, and he noticed across the street a Howard Johnson's hotel, hotel. And so he just walked across the street, and he said to the clerk at the desk, look, I, I need an emergency meeting in the morning with about five of my coworkers. We just need a room for a couple of hours starting at 9 o'clock. Can you help me? person said, wait here just a minute, was gone for about 60 seconds, came back and said, sir, you're all set. Your room is ready for you, 9 o'clock in the morning. Now, when he goes back to that city, which of those hotels do you believe is going to get his business? I think the answer is pretty obvious. This can happen in the church. When organization enhances ministry, it's awesome. And that's what happened in our story today. But when organization becomes a hindrance, when there's so much bureaucracy and red tape, and you gotta do this, you gotta do that, we lose sight of why we're here. True story, I know a church in Ohio that a short time back built a state-of-the-art children's building. I mean, you've never seen anything like it. Oh, my goodness. Everything the latest, everything the finest it can be. But if you go there today and visit that church, that children's wing will be roped off. It's only used three or four times a year. You know why? Because those kids, those kids were scuffing up those hardwood floors with their shoes. A barn is not, the purpose of a barn is not to stay clean, but to house livestock. The purpose of a church is not to be a museum. It's meant to be a ministry tool where we minister to people. And so I want to say to you, if you're a small group leader, a staff person, elder, a ministry leader in this church, someone who's actively engaged with our Grace in Action partners, listen, I hope you'll do things decently in order and in order. I hope you'll do things with excellence, but we are not here to enforce rules and jump through bureaucratic hoops. Put people first. That's all I'm saying. Put people first. Help people find the Savior and grow in him. That's the main thing. Jesus gave us those marching orders. They're awesome. In Acts 28, here's what he said. He said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them. Got kind of two parts to it here. You win them. You reach, and then you train them. You teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. He said, now, Pastor Rex, question. If that's really the mission, the primary mission of the church, how come we do so many other things? 
How come we help homeless people and hurting people and feed hungry people and do all this other stuff that we do? Great question. Two reasons. One, Jesus told us to. That's a pretty good reason. Pretty good reason. He said, I want you to feed the hungry. I want you to clothe the naked. I want you to visit those who are sick and in prison. In other words, pretty clear. I want you to be compassionate to people all around you. And of course, he modeled that quite well. But the second reason that we do that is that being compassionate and doing so many of the other things we do greatly increases our credibility to speak the truth. I don't need to convince you of this, surely. Any thinking person in our world today understands that ministering to hurting people elevates and escalates your credibility. Think of Mother Teresa, the late Mother Teresa. Do you ever hear anybody, I'd be curious, do you ever, ever hear anybody, both either during her lifetime or after, say a negative word about her? I don't. Why? Because she spent her whole life helping hurting people. And even if you don't believe in a thing she believed in, even if you disagree with her theology, even if you don't believe in Christianity at all, boy, you respect her because of how she lived. So when we help the homeless, when we feed the hungry, when we serve the least of these, oh my goodness, we're earning a right, really, to be heard. I hope you heard that, folks, but I hope you're still listening. I hope you're still listening. I'm passionate about this. But we must never be so passionate about being respected by the world that we refuse to call people to repentance. Hope you heard that. In case you didn't know, the gospel is prickly. God gets in my face with the gospel and says, Rex Keener, you are a sinner. You have fallen short of my standards. He does the same with you. And you may not be as bad a sinner, as big a sinner as I am, but you've broken his standards too. And he calls us to repentance. And now he's given that prickly, and it is a tough message. Ooh, to us. And he says, I want you to go and take this to the ends of the earth. And so the applause of men must never become more important than the approval of God. Oh, I hope you're hearing that. When that begins to happen, churches begin to drift into liberal theology. They begin to change the parts of the message that they think are offensive to the world. They adjust the message in order to please the culture. And the church becomes emotionally driven rather than biblically driven. Oh, it happens all the time. I heard a story sometime back about a polite burglar. You ever heard of a polite burglar? This burglar was so polite. I mean, he just was as kind as you can imagine as he stole from people. But one night in a bedroom, he made a mistake and he woke the couple up. 
He said, oh my goodness, I am so sorry. Please forgive me. I'd never do this. I'm sorry I woke you up. But now that you're awake, I can't have any witnesses, so I'm going to have to shoot you. And so he turns to the woman. He says, ma'am, if you don't mind me asking, what is your name? She said, my name is Elizabeth. He said, oh, that's wonderful. My mother's name was Elizabeth. I can't shoot you. He turned to the man and said, sir, what is your name? He said, well, my name is Bill, but all my friends call me Elizabeth. Liberal theology is like that. Under the gun, people shrink back. Under the gun, they say, oh, no, I don't really believe in creation. Oh, no, I, I don't really believe that we're sinners and separate. Oh, no, I don't really believe the Bible's the word of God or that Jesus died on the cross for us. And we become more interested in the approval of people and the respect of the world than the applause of God. And the next step, of course, for the church is universalism, where we just really believe that everybody's going to be saved anyway because one religion is just as good as another. And when the church gets to that stage, it's over. Spiritually, it's lost its power. You might as well close the doors. So church next must keep the mission in focus. We want to reach people for Jesus Christ, not just for 24 years, but for 40 years and beyond. We want to keep going for him until Jesus returns. That's our calling. And if that's what you're into, boy, we can do this journey together. So friends, let me wrap up and close with this. If this message is true that we preach from the Bible, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and if it really is true that God addressed that issue by sending Jesus as the only all-sufficient sacrifice who could die on the cross in our place so that we could be forgiven and saved from the penalty of our sin, and if it really is true that Jesus rose from the dead proving his power and vindicating everything that he has said, if all of that is true, then we need to share this message passionately, day in and day out, year in and year out. And if it's not true, we are wasting our time. And we need to shut down the doors and call it a day. Years ago, Herschel Ford told about a tour through Westminster Abbey. Some of you have no doubt been there. Debbie and I have had the privilege of being there in that great church. I've been there on two or three occasions, actually. Wonderful, historic cathedral. And the tour guide proudly and with eloquence, mind you, told about all of the exquisite appointments in the church, all of the furniture, all the woodwork, the glass, etc., and all the famous people who had worshipped there and those who were now buried beneath its floors. And at the end of the tour, he said, are there any questions? And an elderly woman, sort of plainly dressed, raised her hand and said, yes, sir. He said, yes, what's your question? She said, has anybody been saved here lately? And you know what? That's a question that we need to always have on our mind. 
Not how many people are going there, not how cool they are, not all the wonderful things that are happening, but we need to always come back to that question, is anybody finding the Lord Jesus Christ here lately and giving their lives over to him? I can hardly wait to see how God is going to make us into the church that he wants us to be. Lord, thank you that Church Next is gonna be awesome because it's designed by you. And thank you that your gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And thank you that you've called us to be a part, not as passive spectators, but as active, dynamic participants in your church as you change the world. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.